0: today we're speaking with Josh Shepner, co-founder and CEO of Agricycle Global. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great. To start with, could you tell us a little bit about Agricycle?
1: Yeah, Agricycle is an international startup. We're closing the gap between smallholder farmers in developing economies to global markets by democratizing access to the agricultural value chain. We do that through a portfolio of upcycled ingredients. The whole thing starts with simple technology that we designed and patented called a passive solar dehydrator. Our version is designed for use by smallholder farmers to meet food safety standards. And it's really like the key thing that enables both smallholders as well as people who don't have access to land, whether it's women who often legally aren't allowed to, youth who aren't you know able to pay, and then refugees who are never allowed to own land. <laughs> and they're allowed to get into the agricultural value chain by becoming microprocessors with, with our dehydrators. We train them uh, to follow food safety and quality standards. We buy the products they create, and they're sourcing food loss from farmers, so everything wasted between the farm and the market. Uh, and then we sell those products. So it's it's one big supply chain that ultimately brings it to a market.
0: And so in terms of like how you started and what drove that initial decision – You know, was there basically this product that was developed and then this is like a really kind of interesting application of the product or did you kind of start with the problem set and then build this product specifically for it?
1: Yeah. So with how this started, it all started with a community in Jamaica that had a bunch of mangoes going to waste and they had the idea of dehydrating it, or at least a nonprofit did. Uh, The solution was to turn dried mangoes into beer. It was a very Milwaukee (laughs) solution. Sure. You know, we, they they went with what they knew, but what we ended up working through with them was a, that's a terrible idea, but why don't you sell dried mangoes? You know, like three steps less in the whole process and you can still make money off of it. And so we started to adapt solar dehydrators so that smaller farmers could use them. As we went through that project, all the other groups that were working on it dropped out of it. We became the only ones who worked on it. And when we got to the farmers and we gave them the dehydrator and taught them how to use it and how to build them, they were like, what does this matter? Like, who's going to sell this stuff? And they they essentially spelled out, you know, in so many words, the need for a vertically integrated supply chain. So somebody had to help them get it exported, help uh, meet food safety standards and the certifications. Somebody had to brand it, market it, sell it. They weren't the ones to do that part of the entire thing. So they spelled out the need for a supply chain to get dried mangoes uh, to America at this point. So that was the first product. It was this dried fruit, dried mango stuff. At some point, we realized the valuable thing we were doing was not bringing dried mangoes to market for these smallholders. That that was not the core thing that we had unlocked or figured out. It was actually that we had figured out how to create a supply chain from the most remote farms of Africa. At at this point, we had moved to, to Africa to global markets. And so we started to really focus on being a supply chain, expanding our network, uh, today, we have 44,000 smallholder farmers in our network.
0: So. Yeah, no, absolutely amazing to kind of get to that scale in, in a few short years. But when I suppose, you know, to get into the nitty-gritty of that, uh, you know, that development of a supply chain, how exactly, like, did you start? Like, how did you connect, you know, those early farmers, whether mango or other fruits, to the U.S., especially starting from scratch?
1: Yeah, so starting from scratch, you know, I, I was 18, and 19 when I was starting this with a couple of friends from the same college, working on the same projects in, in Jamaica, our first connections to anyone outside of America, uh, really, was uh, just through nonprofits, putting us in touch with, oh, we work with this community in Panama. We think it would be great if you could come there because mangoes go to waste. And, and there was a big learning curve that we hadn't hit yet about you know international development, community development, the pros and cons of nonprofits, A, being involved and B, you know, what their involvement looks like. So we, we ceded a lot of the authority to have communication, to train farmers, et cetera, to the people who professed that they had the stronger relationships and that they knew the, you know, cultural idiosyncrasies better than we did. And, you know, we didn't want to, you know, not be woken off. So we, so we decided that, you know, it was best to just sure. let them do their thing and that we would just, you know, be the ones on the back end. Well, the nonprofits fell through habitually. Each time the communication would break down, a different, you know, grant opportunity would drag their attention in another way. Um, the farmers never got what they were promised. Eventually, though, when I was, you know, just basically sharing pictures of what we were trying to do and trying to, to find more places to test this model, you know, we've been improving the dehydrator, we've been figuring out exactly uh, what it was that we were doing. This was right on the precipice of realizing we're a supply chain, not like a dried fruit company. I got a LinkedIn message from Francis Okot from Northern Uganda, who said, "Hey, I really like what you're doing in Panama. My community has so many mangoes that go to waste. Could you come out here and help us?" It was the first time we had ever, you know, created a relationship ourselves with, you know, a farmer, quote unquote. Rather than, you know, having some curated introduction to some, you know, popular sort of farming group to work with for a nonprofit. We showed up and we did the opposite of what a nonprofit does, which is we just we came there. We you know operated under the assumption that they were under under their own recognizance enough to make a decision. We just said, hey, we have this solar technology. This is how it works. Uh, it uses zero electricity. Uh, it's able to preserve all of the fruits that go to waste here. If you are able to follow these steps and meet our food safety and quality standards, we'll pay you $3 per kilogram uh, for everything you make. Are you interested or not? And it was like the most simple, straightforward business pitch. And that's how, you know, we recruited our first 30 farmers. That was the first meeting on the second day that I was in Uganda. We went to another meeting and another meeting. Every meeting after that was unscheduled. It was just the, you know, WhatsApp messages would start going viral in the communities and, Hey, there's this investor, they'd they'd call me, who's looking to buy the mangoes. And that's what really got it started is just this like grassroots recognition from farmers that this was a genuine ladder that they could climb to try to get out of extreme poverty.
0: And just to kind of get a sense of like time from the moment that you had that first kind of insight in Jamaica with the mango to getting that inbound message on LinkedIn, like how long was that?
1: Yeah, that was uh, June 2016. To you know, the inbound message was in July 2018, and I showed up in Uganda in November 2018 when, when my next school break was.
0: Yeah, and this was the only reason I, I kind of drilled down into that is I think a lot of people kind of don't realize like some of the time and like can get disheartened in those first kind of five, six. Yeah, you know, 24 months. And, you know, if you had been, I suppose, disheartened at that point, you never would have kind of figured out your kind of own kind of product market fit, you know, basically two years later. And so, you know, we, you now have this kind of amazing supply of like go-to-waste mangoes that are dried in this kind of new kind of way. How did you kind of then develop that kind of supply chain into like a marketplace like the US?
1: Yeah, so started with the, the mangoes. Very quickly, it became fruits. And so we were dealing with pineapple, papaya, guava, um, uh, uh, coconut jackfruit, <laughs> some fruits that most Americans haven't even experienced before or heard of in some cases. And that was still in this dried fruit sort of idea. When we realized that we were a supply chain, it, that had it actually come from this brainstorming we were doing about, hey, what do we do with the shells of coconuts after we've dried a coconut? What do we do with the pit of a mango after we've dried a mango or the kernel? And both those solutions led to other products for coconut shells. We saw that we can make coconut charcoal, you know, sustainable, you know, renewable biofuel burns hotter, lasts longer. It's deforestation by using food loss, the the whole thing. And then with the mango pits, we were like, Hey, we can turn this into a flour, a gluten-free nutrient dense baking flour. And we had this idea of a portfolio of products or brands. And that's where we realized the value was the supply chain because the same work we had done with the same smallholders uh, to get dried fruit out of the country allowed us to also then make charcoal when it was being sourced from the byproducts of the you know, fruit drying process. And Same with the fruit flour. All of that was, you know, this this foray into being a supply chain, and then getting into America <laughs> that was not easy. Um, there are a lot of hurdles to jump through from getting international food safety standards. I'm mean, just reading the standards in the first place and interpreting them. And then also just getting everything in place, you know, up until this point in the story, we were still funded by my internship money. And you know, I was sending cash payments to That's Francis right. and to Patrick in in East Africa, just to keep them going. I mean, they were barely making anything because it was my internship money. <laughs> like I, I didn't have a lot to, to, to send to them, but it was the only way that we could keep developing the network of farmers that we needed. So we got to 11,000 farmers by the point that we actually raised enough money to be able to buy the packaging that we needed and once we got the packaging, we shipped that over, packed it all, brought it back and we ended up launching our product in March and April of 2020. So that was the first time that we got to market. It was a very long road getting there but you know we launched in our own you know D2c commerce store. We started selling online through other wholesalers. We started getting into retail. And we've just really grown since since then. The final evolution, I'd say, is just we doubled down in the last six months on being a supply chain. Bulk, you know, quantity is our friend. And so we're we're really chasing after being an ingredient supplier. So we went from being a portfolio of upcycled brands to being a portfolio of upcycled ingredients. With this massive network of farmers we have and the proof of concept essentially that what our brands were, were proof of concept that we we can get a a food grade product from the most remote farm in Africa to a shelf in America. And that, you know, FDA approves it, you know, import approves it, that we can sell to the big CPG manufacturers. And that's what we're doing.
0: And then, yeah, so you can go to the, you know, the, I suppose, General Mills or Kellogg's or whoever um, that you're working with. And they also get the benefit, presumably of, you know, origin right that you have this incredible kind of origin traceability you're working with a specific type of farmer and i suppose there's a sustainability angle to all of those elements as well and is that in some way kind of communicated now by those kind of cpg companies
1: yeah absolutely so so we're a part of the upcycled food association which is a new group that started in 2019 or at the end of it Um, they just came out with their official certification so you're going to start seeing upcycled um, you know right next to usda organic and all of that sort of stuff and it's it's to show that you know a upcycling is a trend that people went from knowing nothing about at the start of 2020 to everyone's now conscious about you know how much food they're throwing out and what they can do about it and that that there's this larger supply chain issue in food and agriculture all of our products are upcycled all of our ingredients are upcycled so you know foundationally we're able to offer that at the same price that conventional uh, agricultural products are sold at So by cutting so many people out of the supply chain, all these middlemen, um, we're reaching down to the farmers that typical agriculture never touches because they're too small. They don't, you know, they're not mechanized industrial farms. So we're able to reach these groups that have so much food loss. And, you know, just because we've cut everyone out, get to sell it at the same price. We're going to be one of the leading forces, I think, in changing uh, the sorts of ingredients that big companies are putting in. On top of that, then, <laughs> you get the, the impact stories of the women, the traceability, the fact that we're able to you know, access all these crazy ingredients that most people aren't you know, familiar with, but you know these small farms have them because it's not monoculture. So yeah, that's just what we offer.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. In terms of the food waste piece, so do you have any kind of internal KPIs or metrics for you know, how much waste you're saving in a given you know, time period?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm I'm actually gonna pull up how much waste total, but I think sure. it was a uh, like 250,000 pounds of food loss that we we reduced in our first year of operations in uh 2020, and then uh, we were net carbon negative 7,500 metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalents last year. So we actually, you know, we we have a director of impact on our team. Ashley, uh, her job is to make sure the business model and the impact model aligns that we're fulfilling our full purpose, we're a benefit corporation. And so yeah, that, it's, it's a really nice report. But it was nice to see that while we're still growing on the, the economic impact side of it, you know, and that will grow with the scale of orders that we're getting now from ingredient suppliers, the environmental side of it has been immediate.
0: And, and so the main kind of source of those negative emissions are the kind of prevented loss of going to landfill or something? Or is there some other element?
1: Yeah. So it's it's upcycling food loss from smallholders. And, and this is where I'll, I'll put a distinction. And there's a lot of different parts of the supply chain that you can make an upcycling product out of. There's food loss and food waste. Food waste is after it's hit a, hit a market. Food loss is between the producer and the market. There's also lots of definitions on what those two are, but we use the FAO's version. So we're working with smallholder farmers. Smallholder farmers represent the majority of food loss globally. Food loss is the majority of all wasted food globally. And wasted food is the number one way to address climate change globally. So to us, we're focused on smallholders on the environmental side of things. And it's something that seems to be passed over in in climate tech and in discussions about how to address climate change, everything. So our solution starts with them. I mean, that's, I, I think that's just a really different approach than what a lot of groups are taking right now. But the way that that it works is all these fruits are going to waste on the farms. They would turn into methane emissions. Um, there's no other market for them to sell them in or u- utility for them to use them. Uh, so we're preventing methane emissions, upcycling it into products that are consumed for calories, calorie for calorie. It's replacing other products on the shelf. You know, it's not like people are just buying extra dried fruit because, you know, there's They're they're suddenly wanting more dried fruit this year. And so uh, it's really just replacing the source of where food is coming from. And with the charcoal, it's also preventing deforestation. That's replacing, you know, for for every one kilogram of uh, charcoal, there's nine kilograms of CO2 emissions that come from the uh, tree. So burning trees are normally 10% effective in the way that rural communities do it in Tanzania and Kenya. Um, so there's just a big shift that we're doing with that, too.
0: Fantastic. And, you know, you mentioned the kind of building this kind of network of farmers and, you know, you obviously had this kind of initial in, like in with, and that trust that was built by an existing farmer who had reached out to you. And, you know, one of the aspects of farming communities, both you know, the Irish farming community, I grew up in, in the kind of US, Canadian, and Mexican farming communities I know most well today, is that you know, generally there's a a trust barrier to get through for kind of outsiders to come in. But clearly you were able to kind of build this kind of trust with those communities. I suppose, how did that process go? Um, And how have you, I suppose, managed to kind of maintain that trust as you kind of hit to this scale when, you know, nearly by its nature, you know, the company itself starts to shift in a little different ways?
1: Yeah, so we deconstructed how to empower, and I'm I'm using air quotes when I'm saying empowering. It's such a sensitive word to use. But we deconstructed how to empower smallholder farmers in our network, and, and to empower them to work with us, to empower them to upset food loss, to to be able to actually retain the earnings that we give them rather than it going into, you know, the man's account. If it, if we're paying a woman, it, it's the family account is normally controlled by the man, we deconstructed how to empower, and, and we came up with this kind of ladder or pyramid approach of the different levels you have to hit to get to empowerment. And it started with security, kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that you need security first. Right. You then need, having security allows you to build trust and having trust allows you to build dignity. And security, trust, and dignity is our formula for empowerment. We came up with that as a sort of framework for looking at how we work with smallholders and seeing where we can improve a smallholder's security whether it's you know more consistent and transparent purchase order process, so that they can forecast when we will and when we won't give them an order, reliability in payment, so we pay within zero to two days of uh, delivery of having products given to us. That's huge for smallholders.
0: That's been incredibly rare.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we just made a focus of actually treating the farmers like customers rather than just a supplier. So you know, customer service, not just in terms of you know having like. A customer you know success manager something like that but actually just foundationally reviewing our model and approach to smallholders and seeing how we can make it work better for them in a way that doesn't overburden us and paying within zero to two days for these small purchases on these micro farms is not a lot of extra work for us um, but it's the world of a difference for them that they can trust that that we're you know we're following through that leads to better relationships and you know the spread of word of mouth so
0: that's fantastic. And then is word of mouth then the kind of primary way of finding new farmers, like people are messaging their friends, family, cousins, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, word of mouth has been big. Now, now we have a large team of field officers. I'm actually heading out to Nairobi very soon to, to triple our team size out there. But these field officers are the ones who once you know, farmers have been sensitized or sensitized about you know, what we're doing, what opportunities they are, the, the field officers are the ones who kind of reel them in. They, you know, explain the dehydrator, sell them on the dehydrator, train them, walk them through the the like kind of dry runs and getting their product up to quality standards, and then we start purchasing. Farmers are only able to pay off the dehydrator within two to three months. You know, we help set them up with microloans as much as possible. The, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has subsidized them in Kenya. Um, so there's different ways that we try to get the dehydrator to the farmer. The field officer is like. Absolutely key in doing that. We also have a group of nonprofits that help too, and almost a train the trainer model where our field officers have trained nonprofits to be able to go and recruit farmers and organize them. And, and these nonprofits are seeing it as like, wow, like these guys have something figured out. Like they're actually buying stuff from these small farmers. Their missions are to help these farmers. And so they're like, of course, we'll connect you. <laughs>
0: And, you know, it's just kind of this fascinating kind of team you're building, right? Because you're maintaining and building these relationships on the ground. You know, you're built, a pro- you know, multiple products and are continuing to kind of build on that. And then you have, you know, this uh, kind of distribution network that you're building as the ingredient provider to all these kind of c b g companies as well as your own direct consumer. Like, what's your kind of general approach to kind of team management, especially when you have, it sounds like a ton of time zones and so on?
1: Yeah, so... I think we were better prepared for COVID than almost every other company out there. We were remote first for the most part, you know, the Nairobi office, the Milwaukee office, the Monrovia office, you know, we had our, our office, right. And we still came in, but all our operations fundamentally had to happen completely in Slack. There was nothing that could just be a phone call. There was nothing that could be just a video call. We had to have documentation of everything because people weren't awake when some conversations were happening. And we had to have it so that everyone could say a breath, whether it's Jacob managing the supply chain or, or Joseph managing the pack house in East Africa to Ashley like, you know, applying for a grant or checking something out. Like all of us had to to coordinate. And so that built like a really core team of directors and, and officers. We then uh, just really invested. I mean, from an American point of view, we, we really invested in Patrick, our director of East Africa. He's our third employee in, in the entire team. His co-founder is more equity than most of the Americans. Uh, he manages all our operations in East Africa from hiring to firing. I'm going out there just support because it's so many people. But um, from hiring to firing to growing the network, negotiating deals with the United Nations—I mean, he's the one who leads on that. It's not like just because it's you know the UNFAO that suddenly I get on the phone as the CEO. Um, Patrick has the full autonomy and authority out there to just build our network and supply chain. That's been out of you know trust and necessity. <laughs> there's there's no way that a bunch of Americans could have been you know relating to farmers and and making these deals you know in in our time zone and. Uh, with our culture. So yeah, I mean, we, we invested in trusting our team out there. And I mean, there, there have been like bumps, right? There's uh, one employee tried to, you know, defraud some, uh, some farmers and we had to deal with that. And I mean, it was just a lack of like supervision, like those issues come up, but uh, fundamentally it's widely been successful and we're still going down that path.
0: Yeah, I think a lot about reading about the early kind of Uber kind of distribution model. So when they would come into a new city, they'd basically hire a local person, knows the city, you know, it's from Pittsburgh or wherever it is. And they are they're now like, they figure it out. They figure out how do you attract drivers. They figure out, you know, where those drivers should be at, you know, because they understand the local sports teams or whatever it may be. And that was how they were able to kind of scale pretty rapidly because it gave a huge amount of autonomy to people who knew, the world on the ground you know uber has its, has its own mix of problems uh, even to this <laughs> day as it's scaled up but i think it's it's a really powerful lesson and and i, I talked to founders who've done something similar generally they found like really you know powerful kind of these kind of like they're kind of like internal network effects within a kind of a larger organization that can be you know quite powerful to leverage
1: absolutely yeah
0: you mentioned a little bit earlier that you know you're on this kind of internship kind of <laughs> salary and that was like all the money and then you kind of raise kind of some capital and because it's such a i suppose you know it kind of has this cross-section of like impact and this cross-section of, you know, like food tech and all these different elements. Um, what was that kind of process of raising capital like? Who were your kind of uh, if you can say, who who are the end investors that you found and so on?
1: Yeah. I mean, the process was absurd. I'll I'll tell you that from the from the outset. We are not an easy company to explain. I think just period. You know, we show we show the bag of jolly fruit, which is our dry fruit brand like, Oh, you're a dried fruit company. And we're like, Oh no, no, no check out the charcoal. Like, Oh, you're a CPG company. And we're like, no, 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 no. You know, check out Africa. And they are like, you're a nonprofit. And then we, you know, then it's a, then it's a supply chain. Then it's like, what, what are you? There's a lot of comments we got about like, you guys need to focus on one thing. You're uninvestable until you're just you know, narrowed down in this specific niche of a product. And
0: you're the mango you company Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so that was the biggest difficulty when we were fundraising is just trying to show that there's a far bigger picture here than dried fruit. There's a far bigger picture than, you know, just a portfolio of CPGs, that there's something special behind functionally being able to organize 44,000 farmers. That's 200,000 people, if you include their family members. And we're the first last mile distribution system to ever reach these farmers. I mean, ever. Like Bill Gates has been trying to do this for 20 years and hasn't figured it out. It's because we've convinced farmers to self-aggregate on the first level of it. We pay them. <laughs> so, you know, surprise, surprise, they're much more willing to participate in the supply chain, you know, not for better food and medicine, but certainly if they're going to get paid. So point is, is that we have this special, unique, complicated solution and just, I mean, the pitch alone would take 20 minutes just to explain. And then I'd leave the you know next 40 just to answer questions. And then I'd be like, well, I hope I get to have a second call just to explain what I said sure. the first. But in the end, we, we raised $1.4 from a mix of angel impact investors, one VC fund, one angel network, one angel fund, exclusively out of the Midwest. One of the, one of the angel investors wasn't in the Midwest, but connections were there. I would also add that that made it a little bit harder in terms of finding people who were more ready to listen to a global supply chain business. On the flip side though, I felt like it was easier to get a meeting. There just wasn't as many people knocking on doors of investors. So during that time, it was the summer of 2019. I was in the Target incubator um, at Target's headquarters in Minneapolis, started driving around. This was not a Good, uh, like lifetime for for me and Jacob and Claire. Uh, we, were, we were sleeping in cars, sleeping on our friend's couch, and everything. Uh, just trying to get the funding that we needed because we're like farmers in place. The brand is ready. We have initial sales lined up. I just need you know a little more money than than what I don't have. <laughs> and so yeah, in December of 2019, we ended up raising it. The biggest difficulty was finding a lead investor. Everyone wanted to. Know, follow on and like be happy to be a part of the round. And so I gathered up most of the round before I ever had somebody commit to, you know, doing the full diligence on us. So yeah, that's their story.
0: No, absolutely. And it, the impact space in particular is is this fascinating space because I suppose it's somewhat similar to the nonprofit space insofar as there's often pretty rigid barriers for what they invest in, that, like a specific impact fund. Like I was actually talking to an investor recently and, her fund uh, like just invests in kind of uh, workers' rights, uh, startups, technology startups that like in some way tackle workers' rights. And there's like seven of those in the world. Right. And so it's like, you know, it, Super defined, so you nearly like some of these impact firms. You nearly need to like know the firm you want to raise money from, and then go design a startup that'll actually like be able to raise from them. But obviously, it never works that way, right? Like you actually, you know, you have to go onto the ground, you build this thing. And I think what's remarkable about your story is that you did have all these things lined up: thousands of people engaging with your technology, you know, and your word. To be honest, right, your the ability to kind of like generate that. And I guess it like it kind of it's a sad indication, I guess, on the kind of larger know investments community when like if those were ten thousand people in the united states it would have been a radically different conversation right because like like basically people are adjusting what they think of as traction because you know it's a developing world country whatever it may be
1: yeah and, and i'd just add that you know we're still barely connected to the big impact funds and everything it's such an insular world what we've done and and i think what's resonated with, you know, just traditional for-profit investors who are on our cap table as well. Like bar none, like we have half, half of them are just greedy capitalists, all power to them. Like, you know, they're, they're invested in us and we're going to do good stuff with it. What has interested a lot of them is that there's something special to organizing a group of people in, in a network that they've never been organized in before. You know, WhatsApp is widely used across sub-Saharan Africa or so a few other social networks. But, you know, there's nothing that touches them in the same way that you might look at Facebook or TikTok or something in America. And the way that we are connecting these smallholders is also deeper than just a social media. We've captured their attention and, you know, we can sell ad space for, for that attention. You know, we are getting people to, you know, walk miles to drop off fruit somewhere and to centralize in certain places. And so we're actually... Using that and starting to aggregate the purchasing power of the smallholders that we work with, and on those trucks that uh, go to pick up the fruit, um, pick up the ingredients, the flowers, etc., we're also starting to drop off fertilizers, seeds, even solar units. Um, and so it's it's a really unique proposition that we have. Just like this completely overlooked population in terms of like the value of you know organizing this group of people is starting to gain some traction with investors for us.
0: And I was also reading Noah Smith. He's like a very kind interesting blogger and economist. Uh, he was writing, you know, futurism is Afrofuturism. This fascinating article last week about like just on a pure kind of population growth point of view, like, people don't really, haven't really absorbed and I hadn't before this article that, you know, Africa will have the population of Asia in on a 50 year time horizon, um, just kind of the way things are going. And, and so you're going to have just these incredibly large markets, you know, emerging uh, over the next kind of 50 years. I suppose, you know, kind of Thinking through like you you have that kind of first year under your belt of you know selling and and, and all those kind of things, little mini pivots along the way. What are your kind of next one to two year goals?
1: Yeah. So we really wanna bring this whole ingredient supplying thing home. We've got some initial contracts. This is the future of the business. So that becoming eighty to ninety percent of our revenue is our expectation within two years. And that's what we want to hit, frankly. In the terms of our network, uh, you know, we have a network of 44,000 farmers, but currently we're only engaging a few thousand of them as active producers of ours who are being paid. Um, There's plenty of training that still has to be done. And there's also just a demand that we're still building up for this massive capacity of agricultural produce that that we have access to. So my goal is to have uh, within two years to have 75,000 farmers and that uh, 60% of them are active producers of our network. So, you know, that that puts us at a really good place in terms of our um, social impact, the environmental impact, will of course, be off the charts with that. Yeah, that's that's my focus. And, and also just really developing, you know, we, we've done so much tweaking with the structure of our teams. We think we found a good formula um, globally for how to set up in new regions and and the right roles that need to exist and and, and everything. I want to be proven right <laughs> a year or two from now that we have this replicable model now that can that
0: can just spread across countries. Love it. And you know, start something in Guatemala start something, you know, and kind of expand out from there.
1: Real quick, it's just that if we're working in Latin America, that means that we can be supplying ingredients and skipping an ocean uh, directly to North America and then Africa can be supplying to Europe and to, to the Middle East and Asia and just where the food loss is going, we can redirect to the closest, you know, large developed markets.
0: And bacon, yeah, that shipping element of the carbon footprint Mm -hmm. as part of the entire picture makes a ton of sense. You mentioned a little bit earlier this kind of these tensions between like the nonprofit, the for-profit, you know, the benefit companies and so on. I suppose what are your kind of general views on like how those things interact? You obviously started in the kind of nonprofit space, pretty rapidly moved into the for-profit space, became a public benefit company. Yeah, I suppose like, I suppose what are the pros and cons of each in terms of the types of problems are best suited to tackling?
1: Nonprofits are good if the solution you're trying to tackle doesn't need to be tackled quickly and doesn't need to be tackled at scale. Nonprofits are good for niche solutions. Nonprofits are good for causes to promote other larger, faster, sustainable uh, for-profit solutions to be created, whether it's voting rights, uh, whether it's, you know, social impact, you know, environmental uh, degradation, anything. Nonprofits can support for-profits in those, but capitalism is is the growth engine of jobs in, in the world. It's the most sustainable form of development that you could possibly ask for, for developing economies and international development. For us, I hated the idea of capitalism, not, not capitalism, sorry, but the idea of capitalism in international development. I thought it was so cynical, like you're trying to help people, how can you possibly be paying yourself that salary and calling yourself a CEO and what well, you're going to have an exit over this. I, I thought it was not just bad, but like amoral to, to even consider a path like that. So we started out as a nonprofit, attempting to be at least. And then I started reading through all the paperwork and just the amount of effort it would go through. And, you know, nonprofits, they have to pull their money, largely um, nonprofits have to pull their money from a limited pool of philanthropy and donors that are out there. When we started to go down that path and saw what it was going to take to, I mean, 10 years from now, we might have finally started helping a few thousand farmers in uh, Kenya after we had proven a pilot and had a board review it and an independent, you know, auditor and examiner come in and see our impact and tweak our model. And, you know, five years after that, we'll have a better business model. In a for-profit environment, you can move fast. You can get a bunch of cash and just pour on, you know, pour this fuel onto a model that you think will work. You waste some of it <laughs> trying things that don't work, but you can move a lot faster. And that's what attracted me most to a for-profit social enterprise. It's just the the fact that I didn't want to wait around for the next five years, like getting okays from an over-empowered, you know, board of board of directors. Instead, so we could just, you know, build this and help people. That's, that's what's worked.
0: And what's interesting about Boat is like you're always selling to someone, right? You're either selling to a philanthropist to like get them to buy into the concept or you're selling, you know, to a brand, you know, a food brand or a farmer to get them to buy into the process, right? And it's, you know, some people are attracted to one form, some people are attracted to the other. You know, I think in a in a well-regulated, not over-regulated or under-regulated, but a well-regulated for-profit sector, you always have speed as your advantage and it's the one thing that i think when i talk to policy people who've always lived in policy i'm always like try, try something you know work at a startup for a year and then often what i say to startup people it's like you know do some volunteering like see how like the slowness of like the local government can go and all those kind of things because you know often these things are trying to target a different concept right like for a lot of these kind of organizations slowness is like a feature not a bug because they don't want to Like the fear is to break something, right? And So like they want to be pretty low risk. Whereas in startup world, you do want to break it because there's a status quo that isn't right, right? And and you want to kind of break through it pretty quickly. And so, yeah, these are different kind of tools for different problems, I guess.
1: I would also add that nonprofits are afraid of breaking something, not just because of the, you know, oh they've done some level of harm, right, or failure, but that they're punished for it. In, in such an outsized way compared to a startup, a startup is expected to fail from from the outset, and it's just a hope that you know they might succeed. From there, it's also expected that they're taking many pivots along the way. Well, with a nonprofit, and, you know, a, a restricted grant that you get, what do you mean you pivot? Like you can't pivot from what you said you're going to spend that money on? <laughs> How many explanations and calls do you need to be able to get the permission to do what's actually going to work? So you, you go through this like incredibly Byzantine process of you know, scoping out what a nonprofit is about to do, and then assessing what the nonprofit did and drawing learnings from it. And, and all these things happen one after the other, sequentially. In a startup, it's all happening simultaneously, albeit not to the same effect. But even if we're veering off course a little bit more I and mean, kind of waving back and forth and we're not a straight line toward our goal, the speed that we're moving at means that it doesn't matter that we Took a little bit of extra curves in the path.
0: Sometimes you get like the worst of worlds, like the what they call the SRED program, S R E D program, up in Canada, which is basically like a, a tech grant where the startup's going to fly for. And it's pretty easy to get; it's not that difficult. I in previous startup life, I, I was involved in a successful application. But once, but now, now you've said what your startup's going to do for the next eighteen months, right? And like you have completely limited your ability to pivot because that's. You know, now you get money from the government. It's all this pressure, and you got to write your reports and all this kind of thing. And so, like, this is this is a program that the Canadian government introduced to encourage startup development, and it's absolutely stunted tons of startups because, like, they weren't able to pivot into something more successful. But yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely fascinating space. Yeah, I suppose you know before we kind of finish up here, where did your kind of concern and focus on you know these kind of social and environmental issues start?
1: It did not start from a. You know, trip to an orphanage abroad. It was not some personal encounter of what poverty was like that I suddenly started thinking about this. I've always been interested about the world. I always was interested in history, political science, just understanding, you know, the, the levers of power and why things actually happened the way that they happened. That let itself, you know, that plus my I think overly philosophical thinking as a teenager of that, you know, why is it that I have the opportunities that I do compared to, to other people? And I you know, started drilling down to the populations that I could help the most and refugees are on the top of that list. Women escaping and leaving the sex trade is another. Um, so, you know, those are some of the most vulnerable populations in the world. So I wanted to go into international development and, and specifically policy writing to work on that. I ended up going to this leadership camp called Boys State in Illinois and kind of reshaped my thinking over what my role was going to be. And I wanted a more tangible part of it, not, not out of like a personal um, accomplishment that I could feel better that, it, you know, I, I made an impact in person rather than, you know, a policy that I wrote, but, but that instead I would be able to actually do something that wouldn't just get struck down four or eight years later. So I decided to study humanitarian engineering. I started structural engineering, got involved with Engineers Without Borders, started working in Guatemala. I mean, that that was really where this this whole drive came from, or this evolution of wanting to be in policy and international development, and then just getting a more hands on approach to it. So it was from engineering that I fell backwards into the the entrepreneurship side of things, which actually feels very similar.
0: It makes a huge amount of sense. Josh has been great. Is there anything I should have asked you about but did not before we finish up?
1: I, I think just a general reminder to everyone is that it's, it's not easy, and it can take years or a decade. And there's people who become an entrepreneur after you know three decades, and there's people who become an entrepreneur tomorrow. I think that in social entrepreneurship, the goal is is always the mission, and that you know it doesn't matter what your path is to it um, that, that you can get to it. So, if anybody has any questions, like they should definitely reach out to you, and they could reach out to me if they want to.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know the big benefit when I talk to startups who are our founders who are like, I want to start something, I want to move fast, you know, I want to get to a Slack valuation in two years. I'm like, if you tackle like a this is a more impactful problem, it'll take longer, but every single day you'll be skipping to your desk because. You know, it's still yeah. going to be tough. You know, but like you actually can see, you know, again that word impacts overuse as, as you said earlier. But you know, you actually see that impact every day. So, absolutely, you know, uh, agree with everything you just said there. Um, thank you, Josh. It's been great. Thanks, a ton, Really enjoyed it.